Okay, welcome. Hi. Uh, we're our, the Westworld panel. We're going to be talking about the TV show Westworld in relationship to the One Book, One College iRobot. Uh, my name is Carrie Millsap Spears. I teach composition and literature, and I'm going to be the moderator for today. I'm going to let all the panelists introduce themselves, and then we're going to get started. Uh, my name is Dr. Laura Lawson Collins, and I'm a psychologist. Um, I teach uh, social psychology and uh, developmental psychology. I'm Sandra Beauchamp. I'm associate professor of uh, communications and literature at Moraine Valley. Hey, Dr. Amani Wazwaz, and I teach composition, African American literature, American literature, and non-Western literature. Dr. Randy Connor, I teach humanities of different sorts. Um, and I write books. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I hope you enjoy what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to try mm. to set the scene a little bit for you um, in case you haven't seen the television show Westworld. Um, it is on HBO. It has two seasons. It's going to be coming back for a third season very soon. Um, I will tell you, if you've not seen it and you want to try it, just be aware. It, it can be a little bit upsetting. It's pretty violent. So I just want to throw that out there. Not that it doesn't stop me from watching it, but I just want to like give you fair warning. We aren't going to show any of that here. But if you see up on the screen, this is uh, the main character of Westworld, and she's actually a, a robot, an AI. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about that. These robots actually can quote Shakespeare. So on the screen, you can see a line from Romeo and Juliet. To relate back to our one book, one college, um, here are the three rules for robotics as Isaac Asimov has defined them. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. A robot must obey orders uh, given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And finally, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first and second law. So if you haven't read iRobot, just kind of keep these ideas in mind as we're going forward because these robots, spoiler alert, they don't keep all the rules. So we'll go through that. So if you, how many of you seen Westworld? Has anyone seen it? Yay, one person. <laughs> well, we are going to show you the trailer so you at least kind of get a, a feeling for what it is. I don't know if I can stay right here with you, I would. Just sometimes I feel like the world out there is calling me. You're one of them, aren't you? You're not real. Bring yourself back online. <laughs> Do you know where you are? I'm in a dream. You're in my dream. I designed every part of this place. Not a theme park, but an entire world. You and everyone you know were built to gratify the desires of the people who pay to visit your world. Just don't forget, they're not real. What you and I do is so complicated. I need your help, Dolores. I think I made a mistake. So our creatures have been misbehaving. 
think there may be something wrong with this world. No choice you ever made was your own. You have always been a prisoner. What if I told you I'm here to set you free? Okay, everybody, um, I would like to begin by saying this. As Professor Millsap Spears was saying, the show does contain unpleasant and disturbing scenes. Westworld is an amusement park. The realm of Westworld is a world where people go so that they could do whatever they want to these humanoid robots. They can kill them. They can sexually exploit them. They can abuse them in the most vicious way possible. Now, what I want to tell you is this. Do you see that image with uh, the young man and the woman with uh, her belly open? Okay. So what he had done was he had taken a dagger and he had hit her on her belly. And the belly and belly wounds are very prominent in Westworld. And what he was trying to do is to show another character that she is not real. On the inside, she's just a machine with just wires. But the thing is this, if you notice in that image alone, does she look in, like she's in pain? She is, okay. They are, these robots are programmed to feel and feel intensely because this is the sickness of the creators. They are programmed to feel so intensely so that the people visiting this so-called amusement park can get a thrill out of their pain tremendously. Okay, but if they are not real and they're feeling the emotions in a very real manner, then this really crosses the line. There's between robot and human in a very unsettling way. In the world, in the realm of Westworld, you get robots who are shot at and whose um, scalps you know, are cut off and they bleed. You see a lot of images of androids that are bleeding. So in other words, the robots in this world become very hyperhuman because they're the ones who bleed. The humans, the so-called humans who go to visit the, human, uh, the amusement park, they can get shot at, they can get hurt, but not tremendously, but they do not bleed like the robots do. So there's something very ironic about this world 
where the robots are the ones who are made to become very hyperhuman. Now, for this brief presentation, I want to take a look at the ideas of Elaine Scarry, who takes a look at the meaning of the body and pain in the lives of humans and two brief but very meaningful scenes in Westworld. Elaine Scarry has this to say about pain. She looks at victims of political oppression and victims of governments and torture victims, and she has come to the conclusion that oppressors I, um, inflict the body with pain so that they can rob the human being of language and voice so that they could rob the human being of a sense of self and rob the human being of the world. So this is what oppressive regimes do to oppress their victims. Okay, so she's done years of research and her ideas are very key. Let's take a look at what Westworld has to say about the role of the body in pain in its construction of human identity. I would like to begin with the character of Maeve. Maeve is a very significant character in Westworld. And just in a, in a okay. minute, Carrie. I, um, Maeve has been exploited. She has been hurt repeatedly. There's a vicious character by the name of the man in black who has violated her and who has hit her on her belly. Again, the belly region is very significant to uh, the realm of Westworld. But one day she starts to notice this. Her wound is not there. She's been shot at and she's been violated, but her belly wound is not there. It has disappeared. And it gets her thinking, what in the world is going on here? If even her wound is something that she has been robbed of, then what mastery over self does she have? Nothing, nothing whatsoever. And it gets her thinking, what is going on here? There is a big possibility that I'm being manipulated. And yes, she is. She's being hurt over and over again. And even though her memories of this pain and hurt are erased, at the end of the day, they're not fully erased. So she has these remnants of these memories, and they're not fully there. So it causes this disruption to go on in her mind. And so because she knows the wound is not there and she does not have the right even to her own physical pain, she starts to piece together wait a second, who am I and who is it that's manipulating me? Because this is the conclusion that she gets to. I'm being manipulated. You know, pain is horrible. Nobody wants pain. Um, there are so much, humans have done so much harm onto one another, but in this case, she wants pain. She wants the wound. She wants to experience the sense of self that she's being denied. So in this scene that I'm going to have played, she tells her lover, Hector, can you please try to wound me? Because let's see what's going to happen. I thought I was crazy. 
I got shot. Here. There's no wound? No, but I was shot. And this was standing over me, and then it was as if it never happened. I want you to cut me right there. him to wound her. She wants to feel that there is a sense of self that she can hold on to. A few seconds later after the scene, she and Hector discover there is a bullet inside of her that has not been removed. And this begins for her the process to unravel that she is being manipulated. And from this knowledge, she goes on, she creates a greater voice for herself and a greater sense of understanding, but she knows she is limited. This is not freedom. This realm of Westworld is not all about joy. It's coming to the realization that human beings slash very much human beings robots are very much limited. Now her story is also mirrored in another uh, story with another main character by the name of Dolores. Dolores is also She's also hit on the belly. She's also violated in unbelievable ways. And her wounds are constantly washed over, her memory almost erased, and she's made to start over again. But she does start to remember. And the memories are not all complete, but she wants to put them together, and she cannot handle it. So she gets this hopeful sign when... Um, Carrie, can I go to that other um, slide? <coughs> okay, yeah. Do you see all the way uh, at the end? She starts feeling, her inner self tells her that she is unraveling. So she sees this little string on her wrist and she starts opening up this wound and she, in other words, she wounds herself. And her body in pain, the pain that she inflicts on herself is a blessing because now it gives her something concrete. This pain that she is feeling in her mind, in her heart, now she has it, she can see it in the image of the wound that's on her wrist. So it's like, it's a bleak joy. It's like, okay, this is amazing. Her life is a mess. Now she has concrete evidence that it is a mess and it is in front of her and she is a very limited human being. A few minutes after this, when she realizes that she is indeed unraveling and her body does show a testament that she is unraveling, what happens to her? Throughout the show, she's made to be this beautiful, damsel in distress. She's supposed to be protected. 
but men take advantage of her left and right. She is programmed to constantly be obedient, but with the evidence that her body tells her that she's not okay, that she is indeed unraveling, what happens follows exactly what Elaine Scarry outlines in her book, The Body in Pain, which is this. To get out of an oppressive situation, you gotta imagine yourself in a different light, in an empowered place, and this is what she does. She imagines herself as somebody who's very strong, and she picks up the gun, and she actually defends the man who is with her. The wound starts to show the creation of her consciousness. You're familiar with the story of Prometheus, right? Okay. I talked about it in class <laughs> two weeks ago. All right, I'll recap. So Prometheus was this god who stole um, the fire of knowledge from the gods, and he gave them to regular clay people. Do you remember? Okay. And who gave them to the clay people, and because of that, he was forever wounded, forever, forever he, there was a wound and it would be regenerated and he would start over again. But the wound shows his knowledge, his beginnings of his consciousness. He paid the price for it and the rest of humanity now has consciousness. For Dolores and for May, for the other woman, Dolores can now carry her wound with her and she has this consciousness and the end she kills her little god, the person who keeps manipulating her, and she's freed from this false fatherly figure. And, and it's, not a, it's not a complete story. It, it continues, the bleakness continues. Well, I just had a, a quick question. Um, so I think this kind of leads into our next slide and our next presenter, but this idea of belly pain, um, you know, my mind essentially goes to Frankenstein and reproduction and so those kinds of things. And I think that because these female characters are shown in that way, I think that's part of this discussion too and the reality of, of that. Don't you agree? Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, all right. So let, we're gonna move on here, but thank you. Um, so now we're gonna move on. Um, and talk a little bit more about some of the literary elements that continue throughout this conversation. Um, one of the things that the, the ideas of wounds and things like that are supposed to help us learn empathy for the characters who are robotic, right? We have empathy for them. We are on their side from the beginning. If you're reading I, Robot, the first chapter is about Robbie, and he is a very empathetic character, and his, his, his um, friend, his name is Gloria, and she says, he was not a machine, he was a person just like you and me, and he was my friend. And so I think that kind of helps us think about robots in a certain way too. So I don't know how you wanna talk a little bit about that, Sandy. Uh, so as I was preparing for um, this panel discussion, I, um, I hurriedly went back and tried to review some of the Westworld episodes and this time take notes. And I was taking pages and pages of notes because there is so much in um, these episodes to unpack. Um, but one question kept coming to my mind, and that is, um, how does technology, the advancements in technology, change what it means to be a human being, um, particularly in the 21st century? 
Um, I know that when we make these wonderful technological advancements, we enhance our lives, right? Uh, we can go back to the, the printing press and see how many changes that made um, in humanity. Um, planes, trains, and automobiles allowed the regular human being to, to travel uh, through space and time, um, and it sped up our existence. Um, computers, cell phones, I don't think I have to talk too much about how that's changed our lives and what it means to be connected to one another. And so I was asking these questions um, as I was re-watching Westworld, and I was wondering about the creator, Dr. Ford, who you saw he is played by Anthony Quinn. Um, and he takes on, at the beginning, a kind of calm, fatherly-like figure. Um, he calls the robots that he makes his creatures. He creates this world um, which is very different from the world that exists outside where the visitors come from. It is in the past, okay? It is set in the West. It is a time when lawlessness reigned um, and, and people could treat others without, without law. Um, and then there are the hosts that Amani talked about so well. Um, they are robots, they are creatures, but they are soft. They are endowed with all of the emotions <coughs> of human beings. They can feel love, they can feel pain, they can feel sorrow, longing, and empathy. Um, at one point, there are three different characters who experience significant loss in their lives, and Dr. Ford offers to remove that memory from them, and all three of them respond, no, I need that memory. The pain is all I have left of them. That is something very human, right? So we have these hosts, as they're called, who are in some ways more human than the visitors who come to them. The visitors from the outside, from the real world, who have the economic means and leisure to do so, come to the past. Why? Why would they do this? Um, and I think part of the, the answer is they're able to do the things that Amani was talking about to the host, these very human-like, they look just like them. They are able to, with impunity, without consequence, torture, maim, um, rape, exploit the hosts at will. And some of them do so gleefully. Um, and, and that's part of the disturbing uh, aspect of this particular episode, is what it reveals about humanity's potential for greatness, innovation, technological advancement, but also destruction. And so as I was asking that question, you know, why would someone want to go back and to do this? The answer occurred to me, this isn't necessarily something new. This is something that we have seen perpetrated throughout history over and over again. Human beings treating other, others, the other, um, with cruelty. And I think that that's part of Westworld as well, um, particularly with the inclusion of the Native American uh, people. I know that Randy will, will talk about that in just a moment. So 
I guess the, the question that I'm left with is what does Westworld and shows like it, I think of Russian Doll, I think of Blade Runner, um, all of these others, what does it teach us about our own humanity and um, the care with which we have to move forward? Because the train has left the station, right, for us. There's no going back to the beginning. So going forward, I think we have to take care about the choices that we make. Um, the visitors who do enter the park, they have a choice of the, the two, uh, William and his friend, have a choice of selecting a white hat or a black hat. Um, white perhaps representing or being symbolic of uh, being the good guy, Dudley Do-Right, and the black hat of being the villain. Um, so they, they make that choice, seemingly that choice, uh, moving forward. And it dictates the narrative that they follow and the actions that they take in the episode. Um, we also see another character, uh, Amanda, you mentioned, um, the man in, in black, um, who has been coming to the park, we find out, for over 35 years. And he is obsessed with getting to the core of Westworld, to the heart of it, any way possible. Um, and so I, I think going forward, one of the questions that we ask is if we make choices between good and bad every day, are we choosing the, the white hat or the, the black hat? I think that it's really important to kind of put this in the context too of how we treat um, each other and this theme of empathy that runs through the show from the very first episode. I don't mean to be a spoiler, but you can kind of think about robots that have been abused and tortured and abused and tortured. Um, they eventually fight back, right? You're waiting for that, right? So that's essentially the, the, the core of the show, and one of those things happens after these very, very deep um, dichotomies that, that Sandy was just talking about. Um, you can see that, too, in the chapter about QT in iRobot and when he's discovering his own consciousness and how he, he sees the world and how the world sees him. So now we're going to talk a little bit about free will. Um, so I wanted to bring some of what everybody else has talked about and, and kind of tie it to some of the psychological issues that I see, um, kind of themes running through uh, this series. And I really wanted to start with this idea of memory, trauma, and identity, um, which has already been touched on. Um, in Westworld, the robots uh, all have a cornerstone to their identity. And the cornerstone to their identity is always a traumatic event. And I, I just wanted everybody to think about um, how does that translate into us, into real humans? And I'd like you guys to think about your identity and how you define yourselves. And are there any significant events that help to define who you are? And a lot of times people come back to traumatic memories. So as much as we often want to, we feel like we want to erase those memories, um, they're a key part to our identity, and it turns out they are a key part to the robot's identity. Um, and then this is tied into just memory as a whole for, for these individuals, for the robots. Um, they really gain a sense of awareness and consciousness um, as Amani was talking about, through 
memory. Um, and their creators are able to control them through erasing memory. So every time they get fixed up in the shop and then they get placed again in Westworld, their memories are wiped. And it's really not until they start regaining their memory that they're able to become conscious, become truly sentient. Um, and, and again, kind of connecting that to psychology, um, I, I wanted everybody to think about what role memory plays in your life and think about um, what would you be without your memories? What kind of identity would you have without your memories? Can anybody think of an example of something that happens when people lose their memory? What happens? Yeah. Yeah, you, you could become a different person because that's what you've built your identity on, right? Um, think about, does anybody know a disease that's connected with that, a disease process? Okay, schizophrenia is, is an excellent example. There are several mental illnesses that are excellent examples. Um, I also think about some diseases of aging, like Alzheimer's disease, um, and diseases that are really terrifying to us. And why are they terrifying? It's a loss of self, right? And it's a loss of self because our identity our identity has been removed because our memories have been removed. So I, I wanted to, you know, bring that back to, again, that psychological issue. The other main thing that I wanted to talk about here that ties into psychology is this idea of habit and behavioral loops. So the robots are set on certain behavioral loops. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the series, you'll see the robots continue on their loop, and, and as long as no one interacts with them from outside the park, they'll just keep doing the same things. They'll have the exact same interactions with the other robots in the park. They'll do the same thing because they're on this behavioral loop. Okay, and then the next day starts, and they start on their behavioral loop again. Um, and so this ties in to habits that we all engage in, right, as humans. Um, so how much of a behavioral loop do you all feel like you live your lives on? Can you think of any behavioral loops that you have, that is, habits in order that you do every day, or maybe on certain days? Can people think of different behavioral loops? Yeah. School, work, sleep, <laughs> get repeat. up, repeat, right? And maybe it changes, maybe on the weekend. No, never, never changes. Um, you know, it could change somewhat throughout your life as you get a new job or as you take new classes, but we very much function on behavioral loops. Uh, there was a, a study that was done in 2010 where they followed tens of thousands of cell phone users with their permission um, to see, you know, what do these individuals do from day to day? Like, where are they? Um, and can we predict where they will be if we get a certain amount of input? Um, any guess as to how predictable the average person is in where they are day to day? From zero to 100%, how predictable do you think people are? <laughs> You're very close. It was 93%. We are 93% predictable, and the least predictable person was 80% predictable. The least predictable person was 80% predictable. So if that's the case... Do you know? I what I want you to think about is: Do we live in behavioral loops? 
do we live just based on habits and to what degree do we have free will or personal control over the decisions that we make? Um, in season two, I, I don't want to spoil anything if anybody ends up watching it, but in season two, they deal with the issue of free will quite a bit. And, you know, one of the conclusions that, that they're kind of dancing around is, uh, do humans even have free will? Or are we just stuck eternally on these predictable loops? Um, and I, I know that this has been a longstanding debate in philosophy and also psychology, but I can tell you most modern psychologists, at least the neuroscientists, um, believe we do not have free will and we are stuck in, in deterministic loops, you know, based on our own programming, which wasn't done by a programmer like uh, in Westworld, but was done by genetics and environment and uh, the experiences that we've had. Would you consider that to be part of these narratives? Because in the show they call them narratives and they're written by a writer who actually sits around and brainstorms, okay, how can we make these stories work? And what happens if this character is out of out of commission on the day that the character is supposed to be in the park and it becomes sort of like a stressful thing for this writer and then we find out later on that he basically is just keeps rehashing the same narratives he just changes the names of people and once the characters kind of run into their second selves within the park it becomes kind of that problem is that a little bit what you're saying yeah absolutely and and also you know when we think about in real life um, what runs our narratives um, is not only, again, genetics and our identity and who we see ourselves as, but also our social norms and our culture run our narratives, right. for sure. Um, and, you know, one last thing on this, and then yeah. I know my, my time's oh, probably no, up, um, that I wanted you guys to be aware of, uh, again, because we spend so much time in our own bubble, running our own loop, um, similar to the robots in Westworld, um, there is a, an app out there that helps us to get out of our behavioral loops. Um, and it's, it's in the notes, I don't know. It's, it's okay if we can't get to it. It's in the notes at the bottom. That's okay. It's called uh, findrandomevents.com. It's, it's something that you can download. And what it does is when you um, put your information into it, it will generate random Facebook events, random public Facebook events, for you to go to, totally random. So uh, you say, okay, I have Thursday free from four to five, and you put that time in, your location, and it pops up a random Facebook event. How would that get you out of your behavioral loops or your bubble that you exist in? Yeah, Dominic? Right. Right, it gets you involved with people you've never been involved with before. It exposes you to new cultures and new ideas. Um, but the, you know, one way we might think about this is this is kind of a statement of free will. We're, we're making a choice, we're doing something different that's out of our pattern, that's out of our loop. But uh, you know, is it free will if it's being dictated to us by an app? <laughs> that's an interesting question. <laughs> So something to think about, um, you know, the, the last question here is, is change possible? Can we change? Is there, is there some kind of motivating force internal to us that allows us to be able to make active decisions outside of our normal routines? Um, and the robots face the same 
the same questions. Definitely they do. It's quite an interesting thing that happens to them. Um, my question to you is about you know changing our habits and things like that. How is that beneficial? I mean, what does it do to us like in our brains, like as neuroscientists, if neuroscientists say that we're very predictable, what happens when we're unpredictable as far as that, that kind of thing would be? Um, well, I think that, you know, just as a society, first of all, you know, getting away from the brain, just as a society, it, it benefits our society when we can talk to each other, right? We've got a lot of um, conflict right now between major groups of individuals, major cultures within the U.S., and I think that that leads to problems when people are not able to talk to each other because they, they don't know how to communicate with people who have different ideas. Um, if you go to a much narrower focus and you think about how does that impact the brain, when you engage in new habits, you're laying down new neural networks. Um, and you have to continue to engage in those habits to lay down the network and to make the network more extensive so that you can maintain the habit. And it takes at least six to eight weeks before you have enough network down um, that it, it becomes more of a habit. Well, ne neural networks kind of sounds like robots, right? Yeah. I mean, so oh, I mean, like we're, we're talking about these things that kind of very much create this sort of idea of empathy between um, the humans and the robots in this show, in the book, one book, one college, TV, other TV shows from Battlestar Galactica, Blade Runner, we've talked about that a little bit. Um, you, you would see it in a lot of ways, but this idea that maybe there's not that much difference between right. machine and human. Are we machines of a different kind? Um, there is an Eliza, an, a, another question. Um, and as a Star Trek fan, I can tell you that happens in Star Trek Next Generation Season 2, Episode Measure of a Man. So you can check that out. <laughs> All right. We're going to move on and talk a little bit about some colonial issues um, and other, there we go, discussions. Randy's going to um, lead us on that. I apologize, but so I don't go off on tangents, which I tend to do. I tend to be like the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> I'm going to read mine, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in the episode called Kiksuya, which means to remember, a peaceful, loving, indigenous American man who loves an indigenous woman, uh, another AI named Kohana, tries to protect Maeve, who you've already heard about, um, a mother of African heritage, and her daughter against the evil man in black, whom you've also heard about. But he fails, with the man in black eventually shooting and attempting to kill Maeve. Akachita decides to protect Maeve's daughter and to treat her as family. Both Akachita and Maeve's daughter begin to remember other narratives they've been programmed with, something that's not supposed to happen. Akachita compares these narratives to past lives. According to AI experts, and you just mentioned that, memory or remembering is a vital attribute of consciousness. For the host, that is the AIs of Westworld, the leaders and technicians of the Delos Corporation, 
who have designed and now redesign and decommission hosts, humans are to be feared, perhaps even more than violent guests. If we accept that indigenous Americans should play a role in Westworld, we need to consider what our actions in deploying them might signal. For example, one could make the argument that by having indigenous Americans in the park, we are acknowledging the importance of cultural diversity in society. On the other hand, can we include indigenous American AIs without enacting a form of cultural appropriation, or rather misappropriation? Of course, there is nothing new about the cultural misappropriation of indigenous American cultures. From Boy Scouts dressing in stereotypical indigenous attire and performing what they imagined to be indigenous rituals in the early 1900s, to automobiles like the Pontiac and the Jeep Cherokee, named after indigenous leaders and tribes, to the naming of sports teams with slang terms for indigenous Americans like Redskins, to Big Chief tablets, to the no longer standing Indian village of Disneyland with its living Native American performers rather than the costumed fantasy characters of other lands and restrooms for squaws and braves to the appropriation of the Ojibwa dream catchers from the 1980s onward, with many being manufactured in Japan and China, with no profits going to indigenous Americans and likely to possess no spiritual power. Akachita's loving, peaceful nature is determined to be boring by those now leading the Delos Corporation. After he is taken from his home to an operating table, a manager tells a technician that Akachita needs to be redesigned. Fortunately for him, they neglect to wipe clean his memories. When the technician remarks sarcastically, what's the problem? Did he get bored with his exquisitely dull pastoral existence? The manager replies, they want something more exciting for the grand opening, something brutal, dehumanized. They probably want the guests to feel better when they're kicking his ass. Most of the guests take on a role, and we've heard this, similar to that of colonists or colonialists, while the hosts are relegated to the position of the colonized. After all, they're confined to the park which we might compare today to persons, including children, of indigenous American heritage who are imprisoned in cages at our border. At worst, some of the guests treat the hosts as if they are slaves. They feel comfortable in doing so because they have convinced themselves that AIs are things and not persons. We might compare the alleged exciting restructuring of Akachita to actions of early Spanish and British colonists of the Americas who observed indigenous Americans and from positions of racial supremacy and puritanical Christianity transformed indigenous Americans in their minds 
into beings less than human, into devils and savages. They destroyed the man I was, Akachita states. When he has become a sadistic warrior, the stereotypical figure of Hollywood Westerns, in which cowboys are portrayed as individuals and heroes, whereas indigenous Americans are portrayed as a mass of rabid primitives whose only culture seems to consist of slaughtering innocent whites. Redesigning Akachita might also be compared to the forced Christianization of indigenous Americans. Many children, for example, were abducted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries from their families and forced to live in Christian boarding schools where their traditional beliefs and spirits, ritual practices, clothing, and languages were not only strictly forbidden, but also demonized. In Scott Momaday, respectfully refers to the destruction of belief in indigenous deities as deicide. If it happens that culturally diverse AIs begin to be created or are created in greater quantity, and if we are to avoid as best as possible cultural misappropriation in creating diverse AIs, we might find helpful suggestions made by Mark Rydell, who works at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Rydell believes that AI has to be enculturated to adopt the values of a particular society, and that the more AIs are taught to read culturally specific stories, the better they will become in handling issues of race and ethnicity. Dr. Ford has been careful not to create the ghost nation of Westworld as a generic mishmash, as critics have leveled at the portrayal of Dora the Explorer as a generic character whose ethnicity is a stereotypical mishmash of various Latinx identities. Um, let's see. Uh, to their great credit, the creators of Westworld, Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy, together with the writer Carly Rae, were determined to create a particular Lakota ambiance. They hired indigenous translators to translate English and Lakota. They also hired actors possessing indigenous heritage to perform the roles of hosts. Son McLarnon, Lakota and Standing Rock Sioux as Akachita. Kohana, played by Julia Jones, Choctaw and Chickasaw. And Irene Bedard, whose heritage includes Inuit, and Metis as the older wise woman of Akachita's people. Bedard, incidentally, celebrated for her performance in Smoke Signals, was the artist's model for and voiced the character of Disney's Pocahontas. Thus, together with the show's creators, translators, writers, and actors, represented by the wily, contradictory Dr. Ford, did their best to construct a particular indigenous culture for the AIs, the hosts of Ghost Nation, to carry out. K. 
Can we hope and how might we ensure that if indigenous American AIs are created in the future, their creators will be as culturally sensitive to the creator as the creators of Westworld? Or must we be concerned that they will express the so-called exciting stereotypes of the colonial mind of Hollywood? Decommissioning of AIs is also practiced by the Delos Corporation. When the managers decide uh, that an AI host has outlived its purpose, they are stripped of both clothing and identity, together with whatever memories they might have accumulated. In the show, the place where the decommissioned AIs are housed is depicted as an underworld and the AIs themselves are depicted as the dead. In the case of indigenous Americans, as when Akachita searches for and finds his beloved Kohana there, it is as if Orpheus has found Eurydice among the dead and is duly devastated. It is not difficult in regards to the indigenous Americans to compare this depiction of decommissioning metaphorically to the genocide of the native peoples. Still, there is hope. Uh, not only has Ford included curiosity in the programming of Akachita, but also Akachita has found the symbol of the labyrinth, or maze, which triggers, like the pillar for any of you who have seen 2001, you probably have to be my age, <laughs> unless you're a film buff, um, his memories of other lifetimes. Moreover, he learns from a guest who's gone mad in the desert heat that Westworld is the wrong world, that there is another world. This encourages Akachita to search for the valley beyond that may bring his and his people's salvation. At the episode's end, we learn that the loving, peaceful Akashita has fully returned. He will not participate in the violent revolution that is now taking place between AIs and humans, but instead will search for the other world beyond the bounds of Westworld. We also learn that throughout the episode, he has been communicating with Maeve, who lies on an operating table left in a bloody dress, as if she has been left to die, but is in fact conscious and even directing the actions of the other AIs. Akachita tells her that he will always protect her daughter and hopes that she will someday soon meet up with them in the valley beyond. That's really, you have some really interesting insights there, Randy. I had a question for you about um, the maze. So in the show, the image of the maze, you see it on the screen um, right there where he's carving it into the rock. The image of the maze actually appears at the base of the scalp of when they, when the man in black will scalp the um, host to see the image of the maze in the scalps. So my question to you about is with regard to the Native American imagery, do you think that it's problematic using that sort of stereotypes that all Native Americans would be scalping people to have the scalp have the place where the maze is? Well, from what I understand, the Puritans actually scalped the Native Americans. 
But right, but I mean, um, like in popular so yes, culture, yeah. I do think that's a problem. Yes. Yeah. So it's because, and then it happens to all hosts, though, not just Native American right, hosts. Right. So do you think there's a reason why why the the producers and writers have chosen that, or do you think it's just part of the story, or? I think it might have to do, I'm just guessing here, but I think it might have to do with the idea that the brain is the center of consciousness. And um, so placing a symbol like that in the head of these AIs might, I don't know, assist them, again, like the pillar in 2001, bringing them to some sort of consciousness. I agree. I think it's kind of interesting, and it's kind of a... Uh, the most shocking scene in the first episode when you first see that, in my opinion, um, it's definitely there. Um, I had one other question for you too about the notion of, you talk a lot about colonialism and post-colonialism. Mm -hmm. Do you think post-humanism also falls into this category as well? Do you want, I don't know if, if you want to speak to that or if you Amani wants to speak to it. Yeah, <laughs> Do you want to talk about post-humanism? Do <laughs> um, um, you want to, Sandy? Oh, that could you ask me? Yeah. How do you think posthumanism? We talk a little bit about postcolonialism, and what do you think about posthumanism in this context? Right. Well, I, I think that um, one of the things that I was in investigating was about how um, technology changes what it means to be a human being, and there's an idea that I don't know how many of you have ever, with regard to the car, how many of you have ever started out from desk from point A to arrive at point B and you're driving and you get to point B and you have no idea really how you got there. Yeah. Your, your hands were on the wheel. Your feet were on the tongue levers of the car. Um, and unless you were taking a new route to work, you were on a loop, right? Um, you kind of just were somewhere else. You were listening to the news or music or you were somewhere else in your head and you were letting the car do the job. The car becomes a part of who we are. Um, the phone, I think, is also something else that has become a part of us. How do you feel when you think you have lost your phone? Or you've dropped it on the pavement, right? That phone contains everything. Uh, do you know the number of the person that you really care about? Could, if you lost your phone, could you call them? Or do you, yeah. So, I mean, we rely on this as like our second brain. So there's discussion about what it means moving forward in the 21st century. Are we giving up a part of what it means to be human to become part computer? Um, and we see in Westworld that with regard to the hosts, they often emulate more human behavior, or humane behavior, I should say, than the people who come to visit them and to, to inflict harm on them. Um, so I think we are in an age of of posthumanism, absolutely. It's just really interesting because <laughs> of the laws of robotics, like if we go back to those for a second, um, the robot is not supposed to um, hurt a human, they must obey the humans, um, and they can only protect themselves if it's not hurting, if, if it's not violating the first two laws. So obviously these hosts are set up for failure and <laughs> they're never going to be able to live up to those laws of robotics because the humans go there to hurt them and if they ever try to s protect themselves, then they are um, breaking the laws. In the show, the hosts cannot hurt the humans. They can't physically hurt them. So there's like some uh, 
glitch in the programming that keeps them from, from doing that, even if they want to. So I don't know if that's something that you would like to speak to um, with regard to psychology, the idea of being a victim and not being able to, to kind of fight back. Um, well, what you were talking about, um, I, it actually triggered something else in my, in my mind there, um, that um, roboticists today, at least my understanding, is that they suggest that that would be impossible to program in to uh, AI and that the current AI that we have uh, certainly doesn't follow those rules. So I, I do think that it's interesting that um, iRobot, which was written, you know, 1950, had this kind of um, vision that, that we would be able to do this, potentially, and that it would protect us. There are no such no. protections. <laughs> um, uh, but certainly, you know, what you talk about with, um, say, uh, between people when someone gets hurt, um, it, it, it often is very difficult to fight back against the person who, who is the aggressor. Um, so if we think about abusive relationships, um, oftentimes the person who is a victim in that relationship uh, for, for multiple reasons. Um, there are societal reasons. Um, and again, there are habitual reasons like habits um, there are patterns that we learn from those around us, from our parents, um, or again, from our culture about the ways we're supposed to behave in relationships, and those hold us in place. Those um, hold us in a place where we have a very difficult time fighting back. When you know people who, I don't know if any of you know someone who's in an abusive relationship or you've experienced it yourself, um, and I think a lot of times there's judgment from the outside, you know, why doesn't that person just leave? There's so many factors that hold that person in place and that make it extraordinarily difficult to change the behavior, even though from the outside it seems very easy. And I think that loops back around to the whole discussion of free will and the degree to which we really do we have choice. Um, and you brought up uh, earlier on um, whether or not those neural networks are the same as, you know, potentially the robots in Westworld. And I, I think, again, you know, I can't speak for all neuroscientists, but I think most would agree that, yeah, that's, it's the same thing. There's no essential difference um, that we are programmed by our genes and we're programmed by our environment, the experiences that we've had, the way we've been treated in the past, and that we can't, um, intentionally move beyond that programming. There are choices that are given by our program, but programming, but we can't move beyond that programming. Uh, the robots in Westworld are programmed by actual programmers whose job it is to do that, but it's same result, that their choices are constrained by the programming itself. Absolutely, absolutely. Carrie, could I make a couple of Absol comments, yes. brief comments? One is, I learned recently, there is a Russian-American neuroscientist, his name is Leonid Moros. He's discovered, this may sound very odd coming from, you know, Westworld or whatever, that the neurotransmitters of tiny sea creatures called tenophores that look like jellyfish but are not jellyfish contain none of the chemicals like serotonin, for example, that are found in every other animal including us. 
He argues that stenophores developed along a completely different evolutionary path and states there is more than one way to make a brain. Hmm. And I think that's interesting in terms of what AIs might, you know, develop. And also this, um, that um, when I saw um, Dolores especially, the character of Dolores and what happens to her from being the sort of, what they call the docile Dolores to the revolutionary Dolores, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, it reminded me of Ibsen's play, A Doll's House. And in, the, in this play, the wife is treated like a child throughout the play. She's treated like a doll. The very last scene, it's the dead of winter. She has several children. Um, she looks at her husband and she says, this is it, I'm done. And she walks out the door into the snow, never to return. And I think it's important that, you know, as much as, yes, we have these loops. I remember when I came out, for example, as a gay person, it was traumatic. It was really traumatic. I lost more than half of my friends, at least 90% uh, of the male friends I had because they were so homophobic. Um, it was traumatic. It was very traumatic. And I think that trauma is what we see in Westworld sometimes. Maeve goes through a certain kind of trauma. Uh, Akachita certainly goes through trauma and so on. And that trauma can bring on a revolutionary uh, <laughs> reaction, let's say. So. That it brings on again, you know, a cornerstone, new cornerstones yeah. to the personality. Um, again, though, bringing it back to free will, right. um, that change to what degree is that personally driven or is that constrained by the trauma itself? Yeah. Um, so that's the question. Yeah. And then I just had one final thing before we open it up to the audience. Um, Amani, you talk about the body in pain, and then Sandy was talking a little about posthumanism, and I was thinking about the science um, and technology angle, the idea that we now can have artificial hearts that are mechanical mm -hmm. in some way, valves, and we can have an artificial knee or a hip joint or any other kinds of things. We are now being able to have technology embedded into our bodies. So I'm wondering if, Mani, you wanna speak to this a little bit about this idea of the body now in pain in a new way, maybe? Do you see that at all? It's always going to be primitive. It will always carry this elemental, you know, aspect with it that will never go away. Bernard himself, there's this uh, great character, and I, I already spoiled too much about you know Westworld, <laughs> but Bernard is a phenomenal character, and he has zeroed in on the significance of the belly, and he says, primitive humans always felt that they needed, whenever they felt threatened, they would hold on to their bellies. And it will, ne it will never change, whether it's for humans, okay, humans as people, or humans who are currently in the form uh, as of machines. Whatever it is, you know, we already are either wearing glasses or we have hearing aids. We've, mm -hmm. we've got things tagged onto us, but we're gonna retain that element of our ancient ancestors within us. 
and the robots pick up on this ancient history and for them they want to you know protect their belly protect who they are because it's such such a vulnerable part carrie can we go to that back to that part uh, uh yeah, my slide like a minute or so then we have questions i want to notice something before that please um in the very end where dolores has gained a sense of consciousness. Do you see that image in the middle? That wound suddenly, the blood suddenly appears right over there. So she now owns her pain. So whatever it is, whether on the inside she's all machine or all, you know, soft, you know, human flesh and, and bone, that that wound will constantly mean something to her and it doesn't. It doesn't matter whether we're completely machine or not. Okay. Thank you. Well, that concludes our part. We would like to open this up to questions from the audience, and I can move a, uh, a microphone around if anybody's got a question. I'd say with technology advancing at such a fast rate nowadays, uh, there's kind of like a fine line between like man and machine. Is, is there any way for humans to differentiate themselves in the future from machines and machines differentiating themselves from humans? Because in a, in a sense, machines are now becoming more human than humans themselves. I think it would be unnecessary, Ali. You know, this constant idea of, you know, Randy and Sandra also touched on this, this idea of othering people, you know, whoever they are. I think, like, this issue, if we are, as Sandri Sandra has been saying, to become a more empathetic humanity, then the next step is this idea of differentiating. It should not take place whatsoever creating, continuing that binary, you know, this person is that way and that person is that way. Uh, Kate Darling uh, talks about the idea that it's all about us and it's not about the robots, it's all about how empathetic we are. Having the robots in front of us is a chance for us to exercise our empathy muscles. This is what she says. So the best thing to do is not to differentiate. Um, and interestingly, there is a project, <coughs> excuse me, there's a project at MIT right now, uh, I believe it's called Deep Empathy, where they have an entire panel of researchers and scholars who are studying ways to use AI to enhance our ability to empathize. And one of the projects that they have is, um, I'm not sure how it works exactly, but um, they enable people who use the site to empathize with victims who or survivors of natural disasters um, by placing their own neighborhoods and seeing what their own neighborhoods would look like if they endured similar conditions. Um, so it's again, it's uh, MIT Deep Empathy Project, if you want to check it out. Any other questions, comments? Anybody want to watch I Westworld? I have a quick response to you as well, very <laughs> quick. I would suggest that if you want to 
think about this more, you might read Donna Haraway. Um, she writes on Cyborg. The Cyborg Manifesto, right, yes. Exactly, yeah. It's a really great book. My students get participation points. Don't act like zombies. <laughs> oh, question. Within our world of AIs that we're coming to now, the, like the installation of things into our brain, which makes like human mind first, do you foresee that as a real, maybe like futuristic thing? And is it gonna follow the same path as this? Or do you think it's completely different because this is a man-made machine rather than us installing things into us? So I, we're already installing things into us. Um, and uh, as, other as other panelists have pointed out, but we are also installing things into our brains. Um, so it's not um, the average person who's getting like an upgrade at this point, but um, I, I don't think that that's going to be too far off. Um, you know, my, my my guess, based on estimates that I've that I've read about and heard about, uh, maybe 20 years. Um, but there are, I mean, there absolutely are things that are implanted that um, are are helping people with mood, um, helping people with movement, uh, helping people with specific mental illness like OCD, um, and people have a, a little remote control that they can turn up or turn down their brain stimulation uh, in certain regions in the brain to help them manage, um, again, different symptoms. Um, so I, we could link up with some videos, some, some pretty amazing videos that demonstrate what happens when you turn it up versus down. Uh, but again, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's at all a matter of, of if. I, it's, that's, that's a path that we're going down, for sure. Uh, the degree to which it's going to impact the everyday person who doesn't have a dysfunction you know, I, I'm not sure, but I mean, think about how much our lives have changed based on cell phones, and and how different our our behaviors are um, as a result of of this external thing. Um, would people want? A lot of people, their gut reaction is, no, no, I wouldn't want that in my brain. Um, but that's that's also you know tied to social norm. At, at some point, it's going to start to become more normative. Um, so, to you know, again, at what point will that become more commonplace for the everyday person? I, I'm not sure, but I think it will happen at some point. All right, we are out of time, um, but I hope that you have a wonderful day, and thank you so much for coming to our panel.